Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We've talked about lots of books on this show that describe what the war looked like, what it felt like to be there, what people thought about it. Tonight, for the first time, we'll talk about what this era tasted like. Join us for an esculent and epicurean discussion of Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, a culinary view of Lincoln's life and times by Ray Catherine Amy who will join us tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, where it is still sunny here uh, on a Wednesday evening in the spring of 2014. It's the first spring show that hasn't started in darkness, so we're moving toward a warmer time of the year. But we're moving toward it independently, not on behalf of East Carolina University or University of North Carolina, the state of North Carolina, or any other entity. Speaking only for myself and my guest will do likewise, as always, on the show. It's important uh, this week especially to do the legal disclaimer because in the past, I've often thought, well, I should do it anyway, just take some advantage of the law school education I had many years ago. But no one's really going to sue us over anything we say here. Indeed, it was not always clear if anyone other than uh, my mother, show fan number one, 
uh, and uh, Mark Gaffney, who runs the impedimentsofwar.org website. And a few other loyal listeners are actually listening week to week. It, there's no way of knowing. Uh, I can't see you out there. Uh, but last week I found out uh, from the uh, our corporate overlords at World Talk Radio that they actually do keep statistics on these things. That's how they stay in business. And they decided to share them with me. Uh, and I learned that last month, for the second month in a row, in fact, Civil War Talk Radio was the most popular show on all of World Talk Radio. Uh, we are uh, dominating the competition. Uh, the shows about uh, improving your life and, uh, well, there, there's other things I don't want to mention that they have shows about, but uh, whatever it is, uh, thank you all for listening. It's good to know that, uh, that we're all doing this together and uh, please as always keep sending ideas for new guests they're always welcome i did get one email this week asking me to talk a little less at the beginning of the show let's get to the guests uh no one wants to hear me rambling on i got a letter an email like that a few years ago and my response to that person was hey it's my show if i want to talk i'll talk no one's paying me to do this get your own show i've mellowed since then and i wrote what I hope was a, a more civil response to that writer. Who, who's right? I probably do go on too much. And in fact, uh, this past February, I was invited to be on a, a terrestrial radio show uh, from a station in Raleigh, North Carolina. Every year around Lincoln's birthday, the host is kind enough to have me on for an hour-long talk show. But the host talks longer than I'm talking right now, and then... Uh, plays commercials and then news and then talks some more and I would say out of the 60 minutes of that program I'm probably on the air for five or six minutes total uh, which is fine uh, again no one's paying me to do it it's just nice to talk about Lincoln Civil War with anyone but that's um, what uh, uh, that's what uh, uh, what goes on when uh, uh, distracted by the phone, pardon me. Uh, get my bearings once again. Uh, too much talk, which I'm doing right now, is is not a great idea, so we'll move forward. I will, however, take a minute to tell you who's going to be on the show next, because that's useful information. Uh, next week, Robert Girardi with the Civil War Generals. Uh, following that, April 9th, Corey Recco, a spy for the Union, tells the little-known story of Timothy Webster on April 16th, there's uh, Robert Connor and uh, his book on Gordon Granger, a uh, biography. And then uh, what do we have? April 30th, Catherine Meyer, Nature's Civil War. Uh, Um, Nature's Civil War, uh, Common Soldiers and the Environment in 1862, Virginia. And then May 7th, Linda Barnacle, a book on Milliken's Bend, uh, battle in Civil War battle in history and memory. May 14th, uh, Bjorn Skapson joins us from the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago to talk about uh, things there as well as their uh, virtual book signing program and his own work uh, uh, giving uh, educational programs at the Shiloh Battlefield. 
And uh, next on our schedule, as far as we'll go for now, May 21st, Michael C.C. Adams with a new book, Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War. And that should be uh, uh, an interesting one uh, to talk about as well. So all these things you can follow on impedimentsofwar.org and see who's coming up next. Uh, You can also donate to the show there. Uh, Click on the PayPal donation button. Send us your cash. For $30, I do have a few remaining copies of Did Lincoln Own Slaves? and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, which I can send to you. And, uh, of course, uh, the money that you send is used to buy books for the show or any other purpose, uh, in particular... uh, the current purpose, and I'm looking for donations in the 30 or $30,000 range, if, if you're so inclined, as uh, our youngest, younger of two daughters, still is making the college decision. Uh, people have been asking where it stands. Still, Michigan and University of North Carolina are the front runners. Tulane, Miami of Ohio uh, are, are in there also this week. Uh, proud to say Boston College accepted her. That's in the mix now. And when I told my mother about this, she said, hooray. And then I also told her that Notre Dame uh, did not accept my daughter's application. My mother's response to that was, hooray! Because as a loyal Michigan fan, the idea of a blood relative at Notre Dame was more than she could endure. Uh, With apologies to Jim Q and other, uh, his dad and other loyal Notre Dame alums who listen to the show. It's it's just one of those things I know you'd understand if it were the other way around. So, enough about uh, colleges and donations. Let's get to our guest. Uh, her name, Ray Catherine Amy, and when you're looking for her book in the store, the last name is spelled E-I-G-H-M-E-Y. The title of the book is Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, A Culinary View of Lincoln's Life and Times. Uh, Ms. Amy, are you there? I am indeed. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this. It must sounds like a wonderful radio family. Well, it is a lot of fun. We have uh, wonderful listeners who do have great suggestions uh, week by week, uh, and it, it's uh, a pleasure to have you here. I, I hope we can go by first names. Oh, uh, please. Please call me Jerry. Uh, and do you go by Ray, Ray Catherine? How, how? I did. Ray Catherine goes on the book covers so people know that I'm a woman um, uh, because frequently Ray gets mistaken for just being a guy. So, But, but people just call me Ray. Ray will do then. Uh, very good. Well, let me ask you, uh, this is different from most of the books we've talked about on the show, uh, a book of food history. Uh, how does one become a food historian? Well, um, I kind of stumbled into it. I've cooked since I was 10 years old, and we won't say how many years that's been. But um, I was working as a volunteer at the Jemison uh, Vandegraaff Mansion in Tuscaloosa, if any of your listeners know where that is. And it was when the, the mansion was first going its restoration into uh, being a public place. And I took it upon myself to try and understand the life of the family, and I thought, well, food would be a good way to bring people into the understanding, and I found two recipes that belonged to Mrs. Jemison, the wife of the builder of the home, and I knew what one of them was. It was Sally Lunn. The other was for a thing called a jumble, and I could tell from the recipe, which was in her own hand, um, and written the way we all write recipes down when we know what we're cooking, you know, sort of shorthand and, and abbreviations. There was some kind of a 
cake or a cookie or something. So I just began doing research um, in the stacks of the University of Alabama Library and, you know, pulling cookbooks off and, and searching for what I could find, an avenue to understand what this was, and eventually discovered it was sort of a tea biscuit shaped like a donut. But as part of that research, it was the beginning of a a 20-year journey into reading period cookbooks, reading period journals, agricultural journals, where readers would write in what they were actually cooking, looking at a wide variety of primary documents, and then cooking those foods in my kitchen. So I developed a, a pretty broad and deep understanding of how foods developed and how foods were eaten and enjoyed and cooked. So how was this done as, as an avocation? This, uh, how, how do you, does a food historian support herself doing this? Well, um, I have had some, I've had the good fortune to um, connect with a couple of publishers who have published my work. Um, so, one can make, you know, the kind of living one makes when one publishes books. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, it just sort of, it became, a, it started as an avocation, but then I found it was a really powerful way to tell stories evocatively. And so I brought this kind of um, technique of, of exploring history this way to a variety of eras. I've done a book on World War One. Uh, I've done a book on Prohibition, and that one's Soda Shop Salvation, the sweeter side of Prohibition. Um, but the the Lincoln book was the one that has taken the longest to research and write. Well, I, I can see that's farther away from us in, in time, obviously, Lincoln farther than World War One and Prohibition. Uh, so how, no, obviously no literal foods have survived, uh, and, and you wouldn't want to eat them if they had. So what what do you use to to recreate foods of, of 150 years ago? Well, many of the recipes can be found, and many of the ingredients for the the foods that were cooked in you know Lincoln's homesteads and you know and in Springfield are common ingredients. You know, you're dealing with when you're making a biscuit, it's it's flour, it's some kind of fat, whether it's butter or lard, it's some kind of leavening, whether it's you know a Beating the thing with a with a a uh, rolling pin, or um, using saleratus, which is really baking soda, um, you know, or eggs or milk. You know, you can you can take the primary ingredients and look at how the cooks back then used them, and kind of I've developed a, a my own logic and and standards for you know what butter the size of an egg is you know what what some of the honor measurements are and you know that's how you, you just sort of dive right in and roll your sleeves up and start cooking well has i i'm not an expert in this field so i'm doing what i was trained not to do in law school which is ask questions to which i really don't know the answers uh but has haven't foods some basic ingredients changed over the years. Is is a an egg still an egg from 1860? Is an apple still an apple? An egg is still an egg. Um, you know the sizes. You you kind of have to think about what kind of chicken the farm would have had. But there are guidelines when you look at cookbooks from the year. They say, well, this many eggs equals a pound. Well, then you can just you know weigh the eggs that we buy in the grocery store and see. Well, okay, so they're using medium mm-hmm. eggs or large eggs. Apples and and vegetables are different. 
you know, you can, you can acquire heritage tomatoes, you can acquire heritage apples. They're not the same as, you know, a golden delicious. Um, and so it's kind of worthwhile seeking out, you know, some of those agricultural, um, different heritage products. I've grown, uh, you can get heritage vegetable seeds. I've grown some wonderful pole beans from the 1860s in my garden for the last two years, and they're just delightful. They're, you can use them, unlike a, a bean that we get today, which is, you know, it's either a lima bean or a dried bean or a green bean, which you snap the ends up and eat fresh. These beans, the McCaslins and some of the others, you can eat through all three of those stages. You know, if you pick them young, you've got a green bean. If you let them get a little bit fatter, you've got a lima bean kind of thing. Or you can let them dry all the way on the vine, and you've got a dried bean to make, uh, you know, uh, baked beans with. So there are, you're right, there are some differences. You see those differences in meats as well. But we can buy, you know, heritage turkeys, you know, raised from varieties that, go back into the 19th century, we can get free-range beef, which is um, leaner and more like what one would have had in Springfield as opposed to uh, the feedlot beef that, that we buy. So you can get kind of close. Um, so that's kind of where I am. You know, My goal is with all of these recipes for all of the work that I've done is to get as close as you can get in a modern kitchen without, you know, going to huge extremes. You know, the idea is to to make it easy for people to understand the key differences and um, then, you know, kind of take a bite of a, of a period biscuit made with sour milk as opposed to baking powder. And it's a completely different thing. You can understand how a soldier or a farm boy could be sustained on something that, that is just a biscuit. When that's harder to believe when you have something you've, you know, popped out of a tube. Uh, I've living here in North Carolina for 10 years. The, the local fast food biscuits are uh, much more popular than as an item than they are up north. But mm-hmm. it is hard to imagine that being uh, sustaining someone. But they're not made the same way. No, they're Where not. Where do you take it? We'll take a short break right now. We're going to come back and talk more about this. I, I, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, your book has uh, 55 recipes in it, uh, the, about as well as the history of, of where these foods come from. And we'll talk more about that and more about some specific uh, recipes. When we come back in a minute, we're talking today with Ray Catherine Amy, author of Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, A Culinary View of Lincoln's Life and Times. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ray Amy. She is the author of Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, a culinary view of Lincoln's life and times. We talked uh, a bit in our first segment about how one becomes a food historian and tries to recreate the tastes and smells of food of the 19th century using uh, the ingredients of the times and the recipes of the times. Uh, Ray, when I first saw the idea for this book, I will admit to being skeptical about it, uh, to wondering can one really uh, recreate the the food of uh, an earlier century. But when I started reading it, I, I was intrigued and uh, fascinated by, by some of the, the, the clues that you followed. Uh, for example, corn dodgers. Uh, tell us what they are and, and how you figured out what they must have been like. Well, I mean, a corn dodger is it's kind of cornbread. And when you, you know, read Dennis Hanks' description of his time in, on the Indiana farm with Lincoln, he's you know, describes that young Abe would, you know, put a corn dodger in his pocket and, or two or three and go out and sit under a tree and, and read a book or taking a break from the farm work. 
So you knew enough that it had to be some kind of a cornbread. It also had to be something that would hold together well enough that you could put it in a, you know, in a pair of homespun pants and have it knock around in your pocket for a while before you got around to eating it. So again, I'm looking at, you know, period cornbread recipes. I'm looking at, you know, the time period where this is very early, you know, in Lincoln's lifespan when chemical leavening really didn't exist. You know, things like baking powder come along, you know, after the Civil War in popular usage, although it was invented, uh, some say, before the war. Um, and, you know, cream of tartar comes along in there somewhere, too. But, you know, it's looking at how you can make that work. I'm also considering what kind of cornmeal they would have had available to them. You know, it's not the finely milled stuff that we have. It's a more coarsely ground one. And thinking about how um, Nancy Hanks Lincoln maybe would have cooked these. You know, she's not going to bake them because she's cooking on an open hearth in a, in a rustic cabin. So she probably didn't have an oven other than a Dutch oven. So that was a possibility. She could have fried them in a, you know, on a spider sitting in the hearth. So, you know, just kind of putting those pieces together, I began to experiment with, you know, the, the cornmeal in the water and discovered the, the way to soak the cornmeal and get it to hold together in my hand and then just kind of gently flip it into the pan with just a little bit of grease because, you know, on the pioneering prairie, fat is, is a rare commodity. You know, you butcher your hogs once a year. You hang the bacon and the, the pork shoulders up to uh, to smoke. If you have beef, uh, you maybe get beef beef fat, beef tallow. Um, you know, you get butter, but you wouldn't want to just use butter to fry things. You would rather use that as a spread or as an ingredient in something fancier. So that was kind of how I began to put the pieces together and came up with something that when you cook it slowly in a frying pan with just a little bit of grease, it holds together beautifully. It has a wonderful, rich flavor of this this stone ground cornmeal and a texture that holds together beautifully. So, you know, I put the clues together. Is this the actual corn dodger that Lincoln stuffed into his pocket? You know, without going back in some kind of magic time machine, I don't know for sure. But logic takes me there. And as I write in the, you know, the book with these recipes that I've recreated, I take the readers through the steps. So I'm not saying, you know, definitively this is it, but this is how I've come to the conclusion that this is as close as I think we can get so the readers are free to um, understand my logic and agree or disagree. I think it's a fascinating way to explore history experientially. And a lot of people who study the Civil War uh, engage in Civil War reenactment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And here again, it, you know, a lot of academic historians have no use or interest in that. I think that's short-sighted. Uh, as someone who studies public history and practices that I, I see the value and importance of it. Yeah. But there are reenactors who will overstate perhaps or or you know want want the experience to be more real than it can possibly be. But you're you're what you're saying is that you're you acknowledge there's a, a limit to what we can know, but by combining the clues we have, the traditional historical clues, written evidence, uh, with 
the physical test that if, if you if you actually do make the recipe that you see written down from 1857, let's say, yeah, and it comes out, then you can say, well, this is probably pretty close to what the texture and taste must have been like. And yeah, yeah, exactly. It's remarkable. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, thank you for saying that. I mean, Mary, Mary Lincoln's almond cake is, is kind of a case in point um, to exactly what you were saying, Jerry. That's one of those recipes that, that actually started me on this journey to really um, explore this whole topic much more deeply than I thought I would get sucked into <laughs> seven years later. Um, but you see, you know, when you look through all the presidential recipe books, you see the same, you know, Mary Mary Lincoln white cake, Mary Lincoln almond cake, and the recipe that you see most frequently has baking powder in it. Well, you know, I messed around with with historic recipes and researched them long enough to know that that could not be a recipe that the provenance was Mary Lincoln's youth, you know, in Lexington, which is, you know, where everybody says that recipe first came from, because baking powder just simply didn't exist. So I started to, you know, construct through various threads and various earlier period cookbooks. Miss Leslie's uh, was was sort of the Martha Stewart of the day, and she published an almond cake recipe in 1828. Well, that's very close to the era when um, the Todd family would have been creating this recipe. And so I started, I used her recipe as a beginning point and had to make a few adjustments because that recipe calls for both sweet almonds, which we can get now, and bitter almonds, which we can't get because they're poisonous. Um, mm. But, you know, back then, who knew? Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, the, well, they, they the couldn't point, have been too poisonous. But, well, yeah, I, you know, but I just know that they now, that now we cannot buy them because they are poisonous. And, and your point is well taken, you know, how many do you have to eat before you make yourself sick right. or, or, you know, you, you kill off the neighbor, but at any rate, you can't buy it, but the flavoring mm-hmm. companies have found a way to extract that richer flavor, so mm-hmm. I used almond extract and, and tinkered with the other proportions a little bit to make up for less almonds in it, and so the recipe that, that I use uh, and make the case for is um, rather like an angel food cake. And it's really wonderful. And, you know, not not that putsy to make anymore since we can use food processors and don't have to start a day ahead to, you know, pound the, the almonds to pulverize them in a, in a mortar and pestle. But, you know, it's, it's one where I think my research has led me to something that is probably closer to what the Lincolns ate and enjoyed than the one that you see commonly. I recall that recipe from my years at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, when it was open, uh, we we had a, an exhibit, a, a, a prop uh, cake uh, that answered the question, what was Lincoln's favorite cake? And we mm-hmm. quoted the, the well-known story of Lincoln right, uh, right. claiming this was his favorite. And, and there, it, is I, there is a mm-hmm. historic linkage. You know, the, the provenance of that recipe takes it back to um, Mary Todd's niece, um, who it was found in in her papers, the Helms family papers. And mm-hmm. a, a, you know, Wayne Temple says in his book, um, "The taste is in my mouth." Um, 
that there was a newspaper clipping or some kind of a clipping in the Helms family paper with the recipe this way. Well, who knows where that came from, you know? It doesn't say whether it was published. It doesn't say, you know, but, but it clearly has to be a recipe from the 1870s or more recent than that, because baking powder just didn't simply just simply didn't exist as an ingredient in 1820. Now, I, you know, does that mean it's a totally invalid cake? Well, not really. I mean, it's close, but um, I think you know people do what they all do, which is you know tinker to bring things up to make them easier to make. And I just kind of went the other way. Mm. Now, when. The Lincoln Museum would have events, and occasionally we would uh, have them catered with with period menus, uh, and somebody would make this cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the caterers would then we would do research in the collections at the museum and come up with uh, things served per, per, at the White House, for example, and recreate them, you know, as in a reasonable fashion. But it, it was not a, a PhD dissertation; it was a party, and they oh, were. Sure. Making uh, and this was not what they did. They were not food historians, but they it made it fun and, and, oh, yeah. and yeah. gave us some attention. I'm what I'm wondering is, do you or do you know of uh, uh, caterers who actually put the kind of research that you have done into this and and really create period dinners? Is is that a business niche that's out there, or is is that just too crazy. You know, I really don't have a good answer for that, Jerry. Um, I know I have done some catering. I'm not a caterer, but people have asked me for special events if I would, you know, either work with a caterer or make a few things myself, and I have done it. Um, I really don't know. I, You know, I think it would be a wonderful business. <laughs> it, it sounds like it. I had a, a graduate student uh, in a class the class had an assignment to come up with a business plan for a history-related idea to to show how you can make mm-hmm. money doing history. And uh, one student came up with a basically a food truck to sell period food to students outside of Tryon Palace, the uh, colonial uh, oh, yeah. museum yeah. here in mm-hmm. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of buying hot dogs at the the actual place inside. And I thought it was brilliant, and I'm still waiting for someone to do it. You know, I, well, that brings to mind, you know, Colonial Williamsburg has, I think, two restaurants on their grounds, and they do, you know, the period food from Colonial Williamsburg. Um, so, I, you know, I think there are places who do do it, but, you know, as to how widespread, I think, I think your thinking is right that it's a pretty narrow niche. And it's mm-hmm. too bad because these foods are just really, really great. Well... Let me ask uh, a question while we're talking about the historical uh, provenance of some of these things. You mentioned Wayne Temple's book, mm-hmm. uh, which which is a massive book. Well, it, it incorporates an entire 19th century cookbook in it. Uh, he's written about Lincoln Foods from the point of view of someone who has steeped himself in Lincoln lore his entire life and knows a great deal of detailed information. There are other books. Uh, Donna McCreary has written uh, one, Lincoln's Table. Uh, she portrays Mary Lincoln in public events and has written what's really a cookbook with historical overlay, uh, but it's primarily recipes, whereas Temple's book is primarily history. Mm-hmm. Where does your book fit on the continuum? Um, that's a good question. I, I certainly um, 
relied on Dr. Temple's work because his is really an encyclopedia. So he mm-hmm. could he could you know get me a beginning point to understand something that I would then go to you know many more resources to understand uh, and then bring forward into the recipes that that I did. Um, I tried to be very very careful about what I did. Um, you know, as far as inferring, this is what Lincoln would have eaten. This is what Nancy Hanks Lincoln would have prepared. This is what Mary Lincoln would have cooked. You know, I I tried to dispel some of the myths, um, you know, that, that myth where, and, and use the recipes and the foods to kind of be a taking off point to understand the Lincolns as a family and the Lincolns as individual people more richly and more deeply and been from a, you know, pick up a biscuit and sit down and chew about it and chew on it and think about them and and ponder what their lives might have been like um, as opposed to just having, you know, a sequence of recipes, if, if this makes any sense at all. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, I, there was, you know, for example, when I started thinking about Mary Lincoln and I, in doing the, the research for the book, have come to look upon her with a great deal of kindness and understanding. I mean, what, what woman who has spent her day cooking is not frustrated when her husband doesn't come home for dinner except two hours late? I mean, who wouldn't lose her temper? Um, but in there was one one moment when I was doing the research and I was doing the the chapter on Thanksgiving and thinking about turkey and I was looking at Miss Leslie's cookbook, which Mary Lincoln owned. I happened to have the great good fortune to obtain the same issue, edition that Mary Lincoln has, and. Um, in that cookbook, Miss Leslie writes about, you know, if you're cooking your turkey in a stove, do this. But if you're cooking it on a hearth, have this kind of fire. And I was just dumbstruck because it occurred to me for the first few years that the Lincolns are living at, at 18th and Jackson, Mary Lincoln is cooking on an open hearth. She's not cooking on the, on the Royal Oak Number no. 9 stove, which was, you know, one of her favorite possessions because it was just a marvel of cooking efficiency. She's cooking on an open hearth, and here's a woman who never cooked. She was raised in a slave-owning household, and, you know, she's probably spent some time in the kitchen. But here she is with a toddler and pregnant and cooking with very little household help except from Abe Lincoln, cooking on an open hearth, which is not an easy thing to do. And I just thought... You know, we're so used to seeing her with her with her curls and her beautifully ruffled and fancy tucked dresses. But here's a woman who is a mother and a <coughs> wife and a cook and a homemaker. And it just it is it, it really does present a different view and, and uh, in many ways a more sympathetic one. Uh, we'll take a break in just a moment, but a quick answer. Was was Mary a good cook, do you think? Yes, she, you read the period descriptions, and there are people who write, you know, write, um, you know, claiming that she was an extraordinary cook, as were her sisters in town as well. Uh, it would have been, uh, I, I guess, a necessary accomplishment in that era, and as you say, with the, the hearth as opposed to the cook stove, even more challenging. Well, we will take a short break. Now, we'll come back. I want to ask you uh, about your, your favorite recipe, uh, so I'll give you a moment to think about that. Uh, while we take a break, I'm talking today with Ray Catherine Amy, author of 
Abe Lincoln in Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, a culinary view of Lincoln's life and times. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Ray Amy. She is the author of Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, a culinary view of Lincoln's life and times. We've been talking about the ways one can gain insight into the past by recreating recipes, uh, using the ingredients and information that we have, uh, and what kind of things that reflects on the household life of the Lincoln family, for example. Uh, before uh, asking you about uh, specific recipes, one thing I want to ask, because one can never go wrong with this in American culture today, is to talk about bacon. Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing is more uh, more popular. Uh, you know, covered in chocolate. Uh, uh, there, there, people will do anything with it, and uh, it always works. Uh, but you talk about bacon as a a food uniquely suited to the soldiers of the Civil War. Could you talk uh, about why that is? Sure, sure. Um, that was, you know, one of the common rations was bacon. And George Harrison, who was with Lincoln in the Black Hawk War, you know, was was spoke very fondly of, of bacon and how it was kind of a multi-purpose food. You know, it provided not only the bacon itself, but as you, as they cooked it slowly, um, over the fire in the, in a frying pan, of course, um, you know they gained a cooking medium. They gained the, the fat from it, which they then used to combine with flour 
to, you know, and, and Harrison, he could have written a cookbook in the letters that he wrote to William Herndon explaining their time in camp together. Um, and so, you know, you, you hear, you read, you hear because he, he was like he was speaking to me. Um, you read his words and talk about, see how they, they use those and the bacon grease to make their version of biscuits. So it's, you know, and of course it wouldn't spoil because it was salted. Um, and bacon back then was not necessarily just what we think of as, as the streaky bacon. You know, you see farmers and agricultural journal writers talking about using bacon to mean the salt cured any piece of pork you could have. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you have, you know, bacon, you know, could be a, a shoulder, you know, as well as just the streaky belly part. So, the, so it provides it, it's preserved and as salt pork, uh, you've mm-hmm. got you can carry it anywhere. It, it doesn't it uh, doesn't spoil, spoil too, too fast, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was going to say it does spoil, but, but and, and the soldiers describe that certainly. Yeah, but, but but not like the way fresh meat would have, of course. No, and so instead of carrying butter, which would spoil immediately, mm-hmm. you've got the fat that melts down and, and serves that purpose, and then you've got the protein from whatever lean there is. Uh, right, right, and and the frying medium and the shortening medium to make, um, you know, when you make a, a biscuit or a pie crust, it's called shortening, and that's mm-hmm. the the cooking lingo for combining flour with fat. So it 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 uh, there was a reason why they did that, and it makes yeah, a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah. In uh, out of these fifty-five recipes, when I first saw this uh, this work, I thought, "Well, I'll try one." And and uh, one thing I rarely do at home is deep fry anything. Uh, so of course, I decided I would try the donut recipe and, uh, <laughs> uh, in a frying pan. And they were I burned them the first time. Uh, you point out it's a delicate operation. It is. But it is. They were nonetheless uh, incredibly tasty compared to uh, the Krispy Kreme that is just down 10th Street here from the Rooster Building, uh, which are you know, diabetes-inducing blobs of sugar. Uh, yeah, what's I, your, I am so glad you like those donuts. I love those donuts. <laughs> they were they, they're very good. And a donut in the period is, is, as far as I can tell, not a round thing with a hole in the middle. That's, no, these are diamond shaped. I, I followed your directions. I'm glad they were clear. I'm glad you enjoyed them. <laughs> um, but it's you don't you see that the the circular shape with a hole in the middle is a jumble cookie that's very clearly described. But the donuts tend to be described as either diamond shaped or square, and it's sort of unclear as to when the donut became donut shaped. And I don't have a good answer for that. But it's, you know, again, one of those examples, and that's kind of one of the things I envisioned, you know, Mary Lincoln making as these hordes of children came running into the house. You know, you have Willie, you have Tad, you have all the neighbor kids who, you know, uh, recollections say that she always had cookies or something for them to eat. And when you look at the Springfield house, there are three ways you can come careening into that kitchen. You know, there are the two doors, the one on the side, the one at the back, and then the dining room window pulls up from the base so you could come through the big dining room window into the kitchen. 
So, you know, between all the neighborhood kids and Fido the dog, um, you know, I just envision this as being a, a tremendously lively kitchen and home you know, because as some of the, so many writers said, you know, neither Lincoln nor Mary could really discipline those boys. They indulged them in, in anything. And, sure. you know, again, that's, that's part of the, the rich family life that I think um, reached and touched me so deeply that I wanted to write about through the avenue of food. Of the recipes in the book, it's it's hard to choose a favorite of anything, I suppose, but uh, which, one, which ones did you... Uh, yeah, I'll just ask, what's your favorite? <laughs> That's really, as, as you said, that is... It's, just it's not really, a fair question, I know. It, it, yeah, I know. It, it's, it's unfair, but people, pe- people keep asking it, and it's fair to be asked, I suppose. Um, I'm fond of the ones that are perhaps unexpected. I'm least fond of the, the White House ones because they're, they're fancier and there's certainly um, there's good provenance for those recipes because we have menus of the inaugural journey and, you know, so we can say, well, you know, Lincoln ate, you know, these kinds of dishes in, in New York. He was served them at least. Um, I, I tend to like the ones that help me tell the story. You know, so there's the bacon-basted military chicken, which is kind of a, a modern take on what the the troops in Lincoln's Black Hawk Regiment, they encountered some scrawny roosters. They had a bit of bacon with them, so they decided they would first try frying, boiling the the roasting the chickens, and then they decided, well, this isn't any good because they're scrawny, and so then they cooked them in a little bit of uh, bacon grease, and they had something that was uh, about as tasty as uh, saddle leather. But, you know, this is, but it really is an interesting combination and an unexpected one to have chicken with bacon. So um, I thought that was, a, you know, they certainly fit the flavor profile of what they would have had. Um, the the pit barbecue, the way I interpreted that with you doing a slow oven barbecue, there's a wonderful recipe from the 1840s uh, cookbook, which is very, very simple, and you just sort of marinate, if you will, the chicken pieces. I use, you could any, use any cut of meat. I just happened to use chicken because it cooked quickly um, in molasses, and that's all. And then you wipe the molasses off before you begin to cook these, either, or so, either over a slow grill or in the oven. And the molasses just soaks into that meat, and it's just a, a totally different flavor and texture than the barbecue that we're used to. And it's just, you know, just amazingly delicious. Um, the gingerbread men is another one that, that I have a special fondness for. I mean, that's certainly the closest we come to a recipe that Lincoln actually gives us. Because, you know, in that, that um, the, the Lincoln-Douglas debate where that, that uh, gingerbread man story comes forward where he says, you know, I was just, I was so stunned by this false flattery that Senator Douglas heaped on me that I was like the Indiana boy who had gingerbread, who liked it so much but got so little of it. I, you know, don't see flattery like this. So I was just dumbfounded and didn't know how to respond that he had so misrepresented my views on slavery. Well, later on, Lincoln expands on that recipe when he's in the White House and he talks about how his mother, and I think it was Nancy, not his stepmother, um, would get sorghum and would get ginger and would make gingerbread men. 
So, you know, again, that's a start point to go back to the, the period primary sources and look at a, a recipe that would have only ginger as a seasoning as opposed to, you know, the gingerbread man that, that we have, either the gingerbread cake or the gingerbread that's man, it. which has, you know, uh, cinnamon or, and ginger, of course, and sometimes nutmegs, sometimes cloves. So... You know, I found a recipe again in Miss Leslie that only had ginger. She used molasses, but Lincoln said sorghum, so I just substituted. And she describes how you make them, and, and in making them, you have a dough that's kind of the texture of children's Play-Doh, which would hold up it, that he could get carried in his pocket, Mm-hmm. And his neighbor, the, the little Indiana boy that he shared with, who said, give me a man, and Abe shared one with him, and then he said, give me another one. <laughs> and the Lincoln described the boys cramming it in his mouth in, in two bites. It has a texture that could be consumed by a child in two bites. So, you know, again, looking at the primary sources of the recipes from the era, taking what I know from the way foods were cooked, you know, from all my years of experience in doing it, and looking at what Lincoln told us, I think we have a recipe for his gingerbread men that that is as close as you can get. I really, you know, just feel in tune with that recipe and in tune with the mm-hmm. time with, with that one, as opposed to, you know, a hard cookie, the way a lot of people, you know, interpret it, because that's all they know from what a ginger man, gingerbread man might be. Mm-hmm. Now, the book is called Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen. Do you have, did Lincoln cook? Yes, indeed. Um, he, he cooked at several points in his life. Um, certainly when his mother died and he and his sister were left to kind of run the household while their father, you know, was off running the farm and making, you know, business trips and going back and coming back with a stepmother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're raised in a one-room log cabin, you're raised in the kitchen. So he would have been exposed to, you know, all of the technology of the day of cooking. When he and... Um, his stepbrother and cousin are going down to New Orleans and they have to stop and build the flatboat first. Uh, you know, they, they very clearly told um, William Herndon as they recalled that incident that, you know, as they were camped along the side of the Sangamon River, that they elected Abe Cook. So he's clearly cooking there. We, you know, talked a moment ago about the experience of cooking in the Black Hawk War, mm-hmm. but there's this wonderful description that one of Lincoln's Springfield neighbors wrote um, that when Lincoln would come home from work in the law office, he would put on a blue apron and help Mary in the kitchen, doing whatever that needed to be done to get the meal on the table. Hmm. So, you know, there you have a, a, you know, a recollection of him actually helping in the kitchen. And then he describes, of course, you know, having to go fetch the cow from the community pasture. And at one point, um, he had a new cow and he couldn't recognize what the cow looked like, but he knew what the, what her calf looked like. So he just waited till the calf went up to the cow and he said, aha, that's my cow. That's and and brought them both home. Ah, uh, I was thinking. Uh, Running short on time, but I don't want to fail to ask about oysters, which uh, you, you describe in the book. And I've read accounts of Lincoln uh, eating oysters, and it is, I've always wondered how in Illinois does one develop a taste for oysters that far from the ocean? Uh, you know, that's a really good question, and he didn't like them raw. He only liked them cooked. 
So, Listen. you know, that probably helped a good bit. <laughs> um, did, I, did they have them in Springfield? How, how yes. did they get there? Well, they came, uh, initially they came down along the Atlantic coast and then up from Baltimore, you know, around Florida and up from New Orleans Harbor up the river. Then once the railroad started to come um, in the early 50s, you know, the newspapers are advertising them coming from Baltimore and coming from New York in barrels on the railroad. So, so were these were they packed on ice or were they canned or, or I think how, it's, how you, I think it's both. There are some okay. which would say you know oysters sealed in cans, and then there are mm-hmm. others which you know you can put an oyster in a barrel with seaweed right. and and keep it moist. And the the little bivalves, you know, if you put some water in there that has some nutrient in it. They'll maybe not be happy as a clam, but <laughs> they they will survive for for quite some period of time. Um, well, but you know you have to. Uh, but you do see the newspaper ads and the Springfield grocery store ads because they would get a lot of these oysters in in for the Christmas season, and you would see them at a certain price at the beginning of December, and then as the month went on, you see the prices, you know. Price reduced, now at a new low price, so they're clearly, you know, seeking to move the stock of, of the oysters. Uh, that would be a brave uh, consumer who would buy those, those uh, dated oysters at that point. But speaking of time, we are out of it here, unfortunately. Uh, it has been uh, fascinating to read about and talk with you about uh, food in Lincoln's life and times. And I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so very much. I've enjoyed this conversation deeply. And listeners, you'll want to take a look at Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, A Culinary View of Lincoln's Life and Times by Ray Catherine Amy. It's published by Smithsonian Books, and uh, it's an interesting way to cook your way through history. Uh, I know you'll enjoy it. And as always, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.